Digital 410 Productions proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your hosts, Dodd Abernathy, Jeff Kopsetta, and Henry Sledge. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast. And I hope everybody had a nice, warm, semi-safe weekend. Um, we'll get into a little bit later. I went up to Georgia this weekend for a uh, tactical event and World War II reenactment. We all kind of hauled ass home on Saturday because they were calling for not only cold weather, but a high winds and insanity. And well, as most reenactors have so much garbage, they got loaded up in the back of their trucks. Most of us don't want to drive home and pouring down rain. I made it home by 1.30 in the morning. And by 8 o'clock in the morning the next day here in Florida, we had a tornado right across the river. And so um, I must have ran against that storm to get home and it caught up with us in the morning and so for the people who are in fort myers florida who uh were affected by that tornado our thoughts and prayers with all you with your property damage i don't think there's any lives lost but there's definitely a lot of property damage i was over there but uh jeff henry how are you guys doing doing well doing really well pretty cold here in central alabama it's cold everywhere i got two shirts on and i'm in florida (laughs) I, yeah. I was going to say, I, I would tell you what the weather is in Texas, but it might change before the words come out of my mouth. We're going from 77 to 39 to 66 the next day. It's about as bipolar as it gets here. <laughs> it got down to 37 in Georgia. Um, luckily, I didn't have to sleep in my tent. Um, a, a bed opened up in one of the Boy Scout dorms, and so I, I snugged in there in a nice bed so I didn't have to sleep in my cold tent. But let's not leave our guest waiting in the winds because he's on the phone with us, and he's uh, ready to participate in the conversation. So, Jeff, if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah, very excited to uh, to have him on today. He is uh... – you know, he garners a lot of respect wherever he goes. He's a, he's a retired Houston police officer, so that just goes without saying right there, the kind of man that he is and what he's done uh, for us and the people, uh, you know, that, that live in the Houston area. And and uh, he, he's a very devout Christian man, and uh, he's just, he's, he's an incredible human being. He is the general patent reenactor, and don't let anybody tell you any different. He is patent hidden in plain sight, which is the name of his six-book series hidden uh patent hidden in plain sight there are six books that he has published about patent he knows more about patent than patent probably knew about himself mr denny Hare. denny can you hear us i can and thank you for that such a nice thing to say about me i appreciate it uh probably oh, absolutely. The i wrote it all down mostly lies you know <laughs> <laughs> well you know the, it, it was an honor to be a police officer in houston so uh when you can protect and serve folks that uh uh, really need the help. Uh, we don't give our police officers enough credit uh, worldwide Amen. and certainly in America. So, uh, But we're talking about General Patton tonight, and I'll talk about police work at another time. Um, <laughs> I have. I've written a set of books. Um, there's six volumes. Works out to about 1,700 pages and about uh, 500 photographs. And it takes Patton's uh, entire uh third army from the time that he found out that uh he was going to actually get the command after the slapping incident all the way through to the end of the war his entire diary day by day is in there what the men did what how they uh operated in the field it has uh um it starts at Patton's day in the morning and from the war room and presentations all the way through the each day i mean each day of the war it starts about uh uh just Prior to the beginning of 1944, 1943, when he was still in Sicily, 
and goes all the way through to the end of the war. I quit on July the 7th, 1945. So um, I was inspired by by the movie, and I thought, well, did such a man really exist as the movie portrayed him? And as I began to read about him and study him, I realized that the movie left a lot out. And then I realized why. Uh, the Patton family, um, after Patton's death, they were very hesitant to have anything published because uh, his son was going to be a career uh, army officer who made it to major general, and both his uh, daughter's uh, kids uh, grew up to be four-star generals, respectively. And had they printed what I was able to find out, what Patton had really said in his diary and things like that, they would have probably caught a great deal of flack from the higher upper echelon in the military at the time and General Eisenhower and things because there was a love-hate relationship between Patton and Eisenhower and Bradley and some of the others. And so what I decided to do was to write a book exactly as it occurred, but I didn't want my opinion in it. I wanted their opinion in it. So there's very little of Denny saying they said this, or this has happened or that happened. It's what they said happened. And uh, I think when history is written, that's the way it should be. You don't need somebody else's opinion telling you what to think. You need to be able to read it and figure it for yourself. So that's how these books were written. It took 10 years to write them. Well, that's a very accurate statement there. You know, a lot of, uh, I think a lot of authors sometimes lose track of that. And to keep it to the true story, because, you know, as we, as us as historians, we found out that you don't have to make anything up. History is incredible in itself. We don't have to embellish it. We don't have to add anything to it. If we tell it in its purest sense, it's as entertaining as could ever be written. Uh, and, yep. and that's one of the fascinating things about your series. I, I bought these. I bought these books from you a few years ago, and and you know I admitted to you on the phone yesterday. I still haven't. I haven't read them, but I've looked through them. I've used them for referencing all six of them. You know, multiple times and. I just I want the listeners to to hear that again that it's about 1,700 pages and it's about 500 photographs. This is not Patton's career in the military. This is not Patton's biography. This is just what 18 months of his time uh, in the service. Pretty much. That's about right. That, um, that's incredible. I mean, that's unbelievable. Well, I tell you, one of the things I, I began to go to publishers, several publishers were interested, and they said, well, look, you know, that's a lot of information. Can you cut it down to, say, 230 pages? And I said, no, I'm going to tell it like it was, because Patton died before he could tell it like it was, and someone, done, someone needs to. So I, it's written as Patton hidden in plain sight, because most all of this information was available, but it's never been put in chronological order. When you put it in chronological order, you get an entirely different story than history has painted about him. And he was a man that was, of course, an authoritarian, but he's also a loving man, and he loved his soldiers. He would uh, let me give you a, an example that happened uh, while he was stationed uh, around the U.S. Um, he was a man of means. He and his wife had inherited money. He never took any money from the military. Um, the entire time. You know, all he wanted to do was be a good soldier. But he had people under his command from time to time that were destitute. And he would make arrangements for his dog to get lost. And then he would make arrangements for that person who was destitute to make sure they found it, that he would give a reward. That way they wouldn't think it was charity. That's the kind of man he was. People 
people see the movie and they think he's a smart, muscular guy that just cusses all the time. That was part of him, but he was much deeper than that. And he was, he was like, uh, if you wanted to follow somebody into battle, he would be the person you want to follow because you had the best chance of coming out of it. And he was a fair man. And he was a, um, a mis- much misunderstood man. And um, the, the people that, when anybody is as open as he was and as knowledgeable as he was and in the press as he was, he's also going to gain some enemies. And uh, he was senior general. Uh, he trained most of the other generals at one time or another that served under him. And when you start to look at the bigger picture in Europe, you see that the U.S. Army was divided in army groups, and each group had three armies in it, or, and on average, and each av- each uh, army group had three corps, and each corps had three divisions. Now, this was fluid. They they went up and down in size, and the Battle of the Bulge changed a lot of the, the uh, table of organization. So uh, that had never been done before. So... Uh, these generals were learning how to do things that had never been done before. Uh, and when you have millions of people in uniform and you have to go into different places and you have to travel with that much equipment, just the idea of moving an armored division into an area, you had to have a person who knew how wide this flop was going to be and whether they could put the armored division in that area or whether it would swamp down into it, uh, a river or could could it get where it was going so the logistics of that and pat knew it all pat studied the the maps and he and he told uh colonel Koch, who was his g2 he says you know he did this in england he says i know where i want to go and i know how i want to get there because he'd studied all the maps and he knew where the different armies had gone uh during the uh different campaigns and the crusades all the way back to the, the, the byzantine period and and even the egyptians he says, this would be the best way to travel. We can make it this way if we can get that way. And so they plotted in England where he thought they would go. The, the movie says that, you know, he shows up with, with Bradley and he flew in and he had, had to get back in the war. And he said, well, I got this plan. It's called Operation Cobra. Well, that's not true. The Operation Cobra was, was set up in, in England. They knew as soon as they could get a breakout, the third army would be turned loose. Um, so it, uh, uh, he had planned for it. He said, well, if I, they do this, I'm going to do that. If they do this other, I'm going to do that. It's like a chess game. And he said, I know what I'm going to do, and the Germans have no idea what I'm going to do. And he did it. Now, I'll give you an, an idea of, of history that, that we've lost. Um, when he was turned loose on the April the 1st, he was actually in command on the 28th of us um, uh, July, but on, on August the 1st, he was turned loose. In a week, he attacked in three different directions with three corps. He completely uh, made sure that uh, his flanks were covered by aircraft. And he actually uh, cleared all the enemy behind him, made a big swerve and a cut, and like a pincer movement with an army. And he was ready to head toward uh, Paris and then later to Berlin in a week. There's no other general we had that was capable of that. He was moving so fast and so quick that, that... they had discussions in Eisenhower uh, command at Schaefer and with Bradley says, we need to slow this down a little bit uh, because they couldn't keep up. Now, that's the kind of generalship you saw in the first week in Third Army from the 7th, uh, from the 1st of uh, 
August to about the 7th and 8th of August. Uh, It's amazing, but people forget, and they didn't know. Uh, He cleared the area all the way to Paris quickly, and uh, they decided ahead of time that the French decided they wanted Paris, and they went in and took it, uh, but it was surrounded by Third Army. He went on, and he never got credit for that, although the French knew exactly which army uh, surrounded uh, Paris and allowed for it to be to, to fall and, and back into the French hands. Uh, Patton was under a blackout at the time, so uh, there was no news of him. He la- actually landed in Europe on the 7th of July, and uh, began to, his army began to crum- come across, and he built his army in a uh, apple orchard there in France. And uh, when I say built his army, you have to understand that his army command, his headquarters, was there in his apple orchard. And as the divisions became operational and came in from England, uh, they were staged. And so when he was ready to be cut loose, he, they, they, were, uh, they had plans in place, and there they went. Um, so he went from that. Uh, he ended up uh, where there was something called the Falsay Pocket, which was a town. And um, he wanted to close the gap because if he could close that gap, he could, he could trap uh, several hundred thousand uh, Germans and possibly help the war end sooner. Now, one of the things I found out while I was writing this book, his nephew, Frederick Eyre, uh, was uh, under Eisenhower's command. And I said, well, what did Frederick Eyre do? Well, he was the bureau chief for the FBI for counterintelligence for Schaefer. And he always believed that his uncle, he called Uncle Georgie, could have actually made it into Germany in 1944. Well, that was a pretty big, bold thing that someone might say, because we know it didn't happen. So he caught General Bradley after the war in an uh, odd moment. And he said, uh, sir, could my uncle have made it into Germany in 1944? And Bradley, in this moment, I guess he wasn't thinking, he said, well, you know, your uncle, was, was he could exaggerate a lot. But in this particular incident, yes, I believe he could have. Uh, now, that's, that's got to shatter you know, people. It's interesting when you talk about the movie a little bit and what it, you know, what it did well and probably some things that, that you disagree with or probably, you know, for the sake of, uh, I guess, uh, you know, a movie's a movie and it can't always be 100% accurate. But. Uh, Henry and I were talking uh, just before uh, you came on. Uh, we came on the air there, and you know, there's there's some one of the uh, to me some of the best things about that movie is, and like it is with Patton, you you get a history lesson by learning from Patton. I mean, I remember uh, one of my favorite scenes is when they've got everybody. He wanted the, the best wine and all the dinner there, and he had all the British guys there, and Patton wanted to sell his plan to take uh, Sicily because, and and he quotes. Uh, the Athenian admiral Alcibiades from the Sicilian mm-hmm. uh, campaign uh, in 415 BC, uh, when the when the Athenians attacked the Spartan ally, then the the Sicilians, and he said, you know, Syracuse is the key to Sicily. You know, it's the jugular, and you know, a lot of people probably say, well, who the heck is Alcibiades? What does that have to do? And that's some of the things you get uh, out of learning about Patton. I I, uh, I did read his War as I Knew It book and i have to say it's not what i thought it was going to be and i know i guess his wife beatrice had kind of was the one that 
got it into print and i think she kind of obviously had to had to finish it but i don't, I don't want to take spotlight off your books talking about that one and, and i know don's got some things he wants to ask you too i'm sure from from reenacting standpoint don did you uh you have something for him well one of the things i wanted to point out i thought it was interesting that one of the things that got him into his research on Patton was the fact that the movie left a lot of things out obviously we've discussed this many times with different movies the reason for being that is there's always time restraints but then when he goes to track down a publisher and we and uh, we've talked about this with henry you, you you run into the same thing the publisher's like okay we are interested in a book but we want x amount of pages and so in this particular case now he's stuck in the same position because chances are if he would have agreed on x amount of pages after he cut out all the new development stuff that he located and put out the book within the threshold that they wanted it would probably have been the same boiled down information that the movie had which would have then negated his whole purpose of putting out the book to begin with that that's that's how i felt about it and uh so i said you know what i'm gonna do it my way uh just like Patton would have done he did his way um if you i have a very rare copy of the original after action report that third army published in at the end of the war it's two volumes it weighs about 50 pounds and it has all the G1 to G5, all the, and it has the secret stuff in there, and it is the the most best written after action report that's ever been done, and it was secret and kept secret until about 1984-85 when they finally got around to declassifying it. The men in his command could get it, and there was only 189 copies ever made. And so when I began to go through that voluminous volume worth of stuff, it became very obvious to me that, that history really owes this man a whole lot. And uh, it's important that what he did and what his troops did, he gave credit to his troops, not himself. He says, I'm just the, the, the coat hanger that they hang Third Army on. You're a Third Army. Uh, and um, he um, was a brilliant man. He, he, and there's something I also found out. He had a photographic memory. He and so when he read all the books that he had written, uh, I'm sorry, written that he had read, and they, he had a voluminous uh, library. He collected maps, so he knew where all the battlefields were from antiquity. He knew who fought where, and he had this memory. So when he went into some place, he had a lot of fun with people. He would, say, and it's brought out a little bit in the movie. He said uh, where he says, "Well, the Carson Jennings fought here, and I wrote this poem about it," and. Uh, uh, and Bradley's kind of looking at him kind of funny and says, well, how do you know all that? Says, I was there. Well, he knew he wasn't there, but he knew the battle and he knew all the people who fought in it. And he might as well have been there because he could tell the whole story. And it was a study of the many, many battlefields and what they did. that gave him that extra edge that he needed to, to second guess where he was going and, and, uh, beat them at their own game. So, uh, as far as you mentioned Sicily, General Alexander was in charge of the ground forces at uh, on Sicily. He knew exactly what Patton was doing. He knew exactly where he was going. He knew exactly why he was going there. So the this this business of race around and beat uh, 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 Monty to to Messina uh, that was Patton wanted to be there before. before uh, Montgomery could be there, but there was no parade and there was no band and 
the reason he did that was to cover so that they wouldn't be hit on their, their left flank as they were going up the side. Uh, you had Montgomery, you had, you had uh, uh, Bradley, and then you had Patton's forces. And uh, you certainly wouldn't want to be hit from your flank. The, the biggest mistake in Sicily was not finishing it because they didn't cut it off. And, the, and most of the German troops that were trying to get out got out and went into the boot of, of uh, Italy and had to be fought later. So that uh, Sicily wasn't uh, as what they wanted it, but it showed something with 7th Army, which Patton was commanding, that the American Army could win and it could win on the battlefield and it was just as good as any other army uh, in existence at the time. And he also proved the Germans weren't the supermen. They didn't have the super guns and they didn't have everything else that, that they had propaganda had shown out and so he he did well had he not slapped that soldier in sicily he would have probably been the lead commander uh in the battle of uh, uh from normandy on uh something he totally regretted um so the human human being he made mistakes and he would he would have told you a, a thousand times that he wished he had handled it differently however people forget about it. there was two of them that he slapped uh one yeah. was named Cruelly, uh, was named Bennett. But people forget about something. When someone was brought up on the same charges that Patton believed that these two were, Bradley had the guy shot, his name was Private Slovich, as an example. So there's there's a lot of history that, that kind of gets uh, strewed around when you get bits and pieces. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to correct the record and tell it like it really was. And it's not me telling it, it's the people who were there Telling right. it as that's, they saw that's, it. that's the most admirable thing about what you have done and 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 your six volume set and I, i'm glad that you you mentioned the poem uh you, you made a reference to it the through a glass darkly that if listeners y'all if you have not read i think it's about 24 stanzas 26 stanzas, if you have not read through that poem you need to and then when you're done and you get the chills read it again and you're going to get the same chills i mean it is very powerful uh i know don and henry probably got some other stuff that they're wanting to ask you and i and so I, if you don't mind danny i want to kind of shy away a little bit from patting the man a little bit because you know uh it's it's an it's an unbelievable credit that you have done to the history of Patton and the third army as an author but our listeners may not know this. You not only have written this, you live this. You are also a patent reenactor, and that is a whole nother, uh, you know, ball of wax for you to take on that responsibility to carry yourself as accurately as possible. So, can you talk a little bit about how you got started there and and the, the command vehicle that you have and everything? Well, I'm sure. Um... I, like everybody else, I love reenacting and, and living history and, and thought it was a lot of fun when I was younger and no one was playing personalities. And since I was reading about Patton, I thought, well, maybe I could portray him. And we did it at air shows, and, uh, a few other places. And as I grew into the part, uh, I realized that if I'm going to portray this person, I need to do it accurately. And so the first thing was to recreate his uniform, which is far more different than, than any other person in the field with the riding breeches and the boots and the, 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 the belt and the, the helmet. It's all different. And so to recreate that took quite a bit. And then when you recreate it, the first thing that people want to know is, do you really know about the man? So you had to have the history. So as 
time went on, we developed uh, a, a group that we call Third Army Living Historians, and we do what is known as a war room. And we take exactly the things that occurred in the war room uh, in Patton's headquarters, and we reproduce it for the public. So the public comes in, they sit down in chairs, and I stand uh, there as Patton would and listen to the G1, the G2, the G3 of that particular period of time. I do the Battle of the Bulge, I do the Lorraine campaign, all kinds of places we could do it. And I st- as Patton, then I stand up and give the orders that he would have given and explain where they're going and why they're going. And that brings history alive. And so I've also done veterans. Uh, we did the uh, Second Army Division. And um, when I was there at, at Killeen, uh, right outside of uh, Fort Hood, uh, there were the real veterans in front of me. And, you know, when you are talking to people who knew him, you've got to be on your mark. And the greatest compliment to me is a man came up to me who knew Patton and had and he said, his name was Willie, by the way, and he said, uh, General, says, do you remember me? Now, he knew. He knew I wasn't the real general. And I said, well, sir, tell me a little bit. He says, when I was in the, uh, the barracks there, you were doing an inspection, and I didn't have a coat. And you asked me where my coat was, and I said they couldn't issue me one. They ran out. And they said, that very day, I had a coat. And he said, all these years have passed. I've never got to thank you for it. And so he looked at me and saw the real general, and he finally said, thank you. And it came from his heart. So you get moments like that when you portray somebody. And, of course, I was just, you know, awed by that. And what it told me and what I, what I began to understand when I'm portraying Patton is people really do want to know who General Patton was. and who. He, so for just a little while, I try to bring the person to them. And I've talked to many veterans who knew him, and I've talked to uh, uh, other folks. And so I try to portray him as if he were here. And someone asked me, what do you think General Patton would have thought about that? And I said, well, I think he would have been flattered because I knew that he had played uh, um, Sir Arthur uh, as a king. He had played uh, Brett Butler in plays, and he had dressed up several times. So he enjoyed living history and reenacting. And I think he would be uh, flattered that somebody takes the time to recreate him. So uh, our presentation, we, we, we said, we're going to do that. Well, we need to have the command car. So I took a WC-57 and put it back like uh, General Patton had with the armor in the front and the, the, the extra tailgate and the 50 caliber machine gun. And I had all the pictures of it, so I put it back to where if you put my command car by his pictures, you can't tell the difference. We did that with an M20 armored car and took it to the MVPA convention and won first place with it. And uh, now that's not me. That's the people who helped me do it. I give credit just like he did to a lot of people that helped. And we do the Jeep, and I have a command van, his mobile headquarters. The original is still at the Fort, at, at the Patton Museum. So I got all the pictures and everything, and we recreated it. And ours, we think, is better than theirs because ours runs, and theirs just sit there. So we take it from place to place. And let people walk through it. We even had the secret phone that works that uh, he, the, the, the green phone that he would call uh, Bradley with and scrambled uh, and, and, and talk about. In fact, it was on that very phone that one night he called Bradley and says, I'm across. Well, you're across what, Georgie? I'm across the Rhine. I see money. And, and 
he was on that phone. Uh, so uh, what we did, we made it work. So when kids come through and adults come through, we were at the 100th birthday for the real Third Army. They call it Arshant. And uh, I played General Patton, and the, for, the commander at the time was Lieutenant General Garrett. And we were there at there, the headquarters is, is at Shaw Air Force Base. So it's a very, you know, <laughs> you got to have a lot of stroke just to get to the front door. And they cleared us for the 100th birthday. We brought 20 living history, historians. I don't call them reenactors when we do a theatrical presentation. I call them living historians. Sure. And we gave the war room for the real army. So I'm, I'm playing Patton and General Garrett's there. And two brigadier generals are standing, are sitting in for where Hap Gay and uh, uh, General Gaffey would have been, and we briefed them on the oncoming Battle of the Bulge, exactly as Patton was briefed in uh, 1944 uh, at his headquarters. And they were, when you can do that for the U.S. Army, those are some of the nicest people, some of our great heroes. So I was humbled to be there, to to actually be with our active duty soldiers at their headquarters at the real third army for the 100th birthday. It's something that for the rest of my life that I will always remember. And I'll say this as somebody who, um, prior to COVID me and my group down here, we've always had for for two years, we had the, um, pleasure of being invited down to the Hilton in Tampa, Florida and setting up our living history displays for the actual army for the army birthday dinners. And, and I've said this on the podcast before, as a reenactor, sometimes you wonder what active military personnel think of you. Are you doing them a disservice? Are you playing army? Or they look down on you? Kind of like you were just saying when you did your war room for the active military. When they come up to you afterwards and they thank you for what you're doing, it kind of basically puts a seal of authenticity on your impression and makes you realize, okay, this is legitimate. I'm not a clown show. We're not a circus. When the real commanders... And high-ranking officials of active modern-day army come up and say, "Hey, your display is fantastic. The authenticity is great." It just makes you feel so much better about the time, energy, money, and effort that you spent on what you're doing. And I'm sure you probably felt the same way in that in that situation. And um, just to go back for the listeners at home who aren't familiar with the abbreviations, the MVPA is the Military Vehicle Pres- Preservation Association, and they do a great job not only with pr- uh, preserving military vehicles. But they'll actually come out to living history events, and just by having those Jeeps or a half-track or a deuce and a half, whatever it may be that your local MVPA members have, it does such a great service to that event because it brings people in who may not be... When they're driving by, they may see some tents and not exactly what's going on, but when they see a couple of Jeeps lined up, some half-tracks, deuce and a half, command cars, what have you, it it really does help to bring the crowd in and to help spread that message. And so I just want to make sure we give a shout out to anybody in any of the states who are a member of the MVPA. Well, you know, you're absolutely right. And uh, the reenactors, living historians, uh, they do something that is so needed today. You can go up to just about any of them and ask them about the gear that they're wearing, and they can tell you about it. They can tell you where it comes from. You can sometimes ask them about the history of the unit that they're portraying or the people that they're portraying, and they can tell you. And that, when when young children come and they see that, uh, it just brightens their day because they're all a lot of them love that kind of thing. And what we do is we also 
point to the current military and we explain while we're doing our reenactments what the real heroes Mm -hmm. really are in this world and it is our military our police and our first responders so we also point toward them and tell them that that we Patton knew what George Washington had said in time of peace plan for war in time of war plan for peace and we have to explain that that we are not through fighting wars but we have the finest men and women in the world who are volunteering to be that difference between uh, the the enemy out there and our protection. So uh, we do explain that. And we also talk about the wounded warriors and those with PTSD and the things that they're coming back from. Uh, so it's not just a, a, a history thing. And our reenactors do that. If you've ever gone to reenactment and people listen to this, they need to go and talk to these people. They have spent hundreds to thousands of dollars on mm-hmm. their impression. Nobody paid for it. They nope. bought it themselves. Yeah, we've discussed that before where sometimes you'll talk to civilians and they're like, so what do you do, just show up and walk into a trailer full of gear? No, all this stuff's privately owned. That's why this guy down here who does communications, he's got all the field telephones. He can tell you every little meticulous detail about that because he bought them on his own. He restored them. You know, the guy down there with the typewriter or the guy at the medic tent and all the all the little bottles and everything, he can tell you every minute detail because he or she researched all that information to make sure that their impression is spot on. And going back to what you're saying about Patton and how he kind of in his own way was a living historian, people don't realize this, you know, and and we are getting more and more into the term of living historian and, and not dropping and not using the word reenactor so much unless it's an actual reenactment. But living history is almost one of the oldest versions of history i mean if you think about it the war dances that the native americans are doing they were telling the history of their tribe and past wars and you know and so going all the way from there to nowadays you know before you had widespread published papers people would share their history whether they're native americans you know civil war vietnam or people in brazilian rainforest somewhere they have their own version of how to tell the story of their ancestors and the battles or what have you, whatever that particular topic of their presentation is, it goes back a long, long way, and we're just throwing our own modern spin on it. You, you bring up a great point, and I know uh, I've said this on our podcast before. I think it's worth saying again that coming back from over there is exactly why I got into reenacting, because y- you knew then, I realized then, that this could not be forgotten. I mean, I thought I knew a little bit about war <laughs> from the books I read as a kid, but nothing like when you're in the real thing, and uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. And, and for all of the civilian reenactors out there, keep doing what you're doing because I don't know anybody that I would have served with that would that would talk down to somebody who's trying to keep their memory alive or the memory of their forefathers alive uh, through military living history and, and reenactments because uh, without the reenactors, after the war is gone, then it just goes off into oblivion and to be forgotten, but without reenactors uh, and living historians to keep it alive, um, you know, then it, they're, they're, they're the ones keeping it alive for everybody. You know, I can't, I can't stress that enough. And, and I've, I've learned that the, the, the living history community is really such a tight knit group. And, you know, uh, like you said, Don, it's, it, it isn't cheap. I know there's people who aren't as fortunate that, you know, that, have the opportunity to do living history 
Um, but I hope one day they do because it, it's a certain kind of person to, to have that kind of passion and to dedicate themselves to, to telling that story that that needs to be told. Oh, and by the way, to kind of go on what I was saying earlier, um, you don't have to just have an interest in World War II. The interesting thing about living history and reenacting is it's dynamic. It's alive. And what I mean by that is me, I got in World War II because my grandfather served. And, you know, Henry, Henry's not a reenactor, but he got into the history of World War II because of his family dynamic and Jeff, the people he grew up around. But it's interesting now that to see that the Vietnam reenacting is starting to get real big because the grandchildren of Vietnam veterans want to know what their grandparents went through and their grandparents generation goes through. And I've actually seen young cats talking about doing, you know, um, early desert storm impressions and all that. And so as their, as the veterans, the children of veterans who served in Iraq war and, and Iraqi freedom, desert storm, some of their children are starting to try to find that era. And so it's not just a world war two thing or world war one thing as the Children and grandchildren of the veterans who served in whatever campaign get older, that always seems to be where their interest lies. So um, down here in Florida, I'm seeing a lot more and more cats getting into the Vietnam stuff. So it's interesting to see the way it goes. Well, it's you can't tell too much history. You The more you know history, the more you can predict the future. Uh, Patton would have told you that it keeps repeating itself. They fight with different arms. They fight in different ways, but they're still people. And if you know what people will do, what soldiers will do in any given battle at any given time or what the politics of the battles or the, or the way the, the war progressed or why it started, then you can see these things as they begin to build up again in history. There's always going to be tyrants. There's always going to be people who want to run the world, and there's always going to be standing armies out there. They may not be uh, fought with... Uh, uh, bows and arrows or flintlocks, but they're going to be fought. And uh, we have to have uh, people who are willing to, to stand up to it. And so if we know our history and we know why these things took place, then we can be ever vigilant. And that's another thing that, that reenactors teach. And, and they do it quite well, that you must always be prepared for the next war. And the way you, you learn about the next war is by learning about the war before what caused it. And, uh, that's, uh, uh, as important as sitting down. And I mean, people love to, to wear the uniforms and they love to go out and shoot the blanks out of the firearms. Uh, but they also know what it took for the soldiers to go out and do that. And they, they, uh, they represent the probably one of the finest. And, and it's not just in the U S uh, Europe has got a huge mm -hmm. set of reenacting uh, groups and uh, they perpetuate the European history and World War II reenacting is a lot of fun out there and they, they enjoy it. And the other thing is they're keeping these vehicles. I've seen people take Jeeps that were, had trees growing in them yep. and spend the time and the money and before they're done, it looks exactly as it did in World War II or Vietnam. And that is the, the restoration of history and uh, that's another thing that's so important for what we do. Uh, look at the planes. Um, I'll be going to an air show in Texas, and me and Jeff will be there, and uh, we'll see these warbirds up there. And when you look at a warbird from World War II, know that just about every rivet in it was put there by a woman, and that we had women test pilots, and they were up there flying these things before they ever went to the men. And it was such as uh, the, most all of these planes uh, 
were built with such a love that they wanted every single thing to be perfect in it before it was delivered to the soldiers. We could call the World War II generation the greatest generation. Well, there was a generation behind them, their moms and dads, the great generation who built all that stuff so that they could go to war. And it's been the same in all the way through the, the, the different wars. Not to had. mention the and, engineers who did that on drafting tables with paper and and manual equipment. They weren't running AutoCAD and running computer programs and simulated wind tunnels. They were doing that all with their brain, paper, and, you know, drafting tools. That's that's even crazier to think that all the aerospace stuff was all figured out with math and just smart engineers. There's a a famous soldier about a commander of an American submarine who uh, had a sub he was trying to hit, and they were it's at an odd angle, and they couldn't see it, but he figured out where it was going to be mathematically and how long it takes the torpedo to get there and figured it out on the table and told him when to shoot. No computer, just math on a piece of paper. Yeah, just like all the um, pilots and their uh, navigators in the planes. it's They're doing it all in real time with math. The, so getting back to a little bit about Patton. And, sure. And he was not the old fellow who was living in the past. He was an innovator. Anytime that he could find something new that he thought would help win a battle, he got into it and uh, perpetuated it. Uh, and he, at, at the end of the war, he called all of his uh, heads of um, the different branches and he said, okay, what worked and what didn't? I want you to make a report. And so they would look at the armor and say, well, this and the armor worked well. And this thing was a piece of junk. We don't need 37 millimeters on six wheel vehicles. That's, that won't work. We need mobile artillery. We need time on target. We need all these things. So what, the, what occurred after the war was just as important as what occurred during the war. They looked at what worked and what didn't, and they planned for the future. And so, um, that too is, is part of the patent mystique because he realized that we weren't through fighting wars. Uh, and, um, that his son, a Colonel, uh, in world in uh, Vietnam, uh, and later, uh, rose, uh, to, uh, major general. And he was assigned to, uh, Germany there, uh, as, uh, our threat was, uh, there in case Russia did something. So another war, the son from the Vietnam war looking toward to end the cold war. So it's keeps on keeping on. At the top of the interview, when you're talking about doing your book and how the family was a little reluctant, you know, it, what you found out reluctant, the th- first thing I thought was, is here's a family who had a member who all throughout the war had all these articles written about them, all these publications, newsreels. And there's an old saying, which I've experienced myself working in radio around here for six years and doing some freelance stuff with the local media and I and I stopped which is you never realize how inaccurate the news is until they do an article on you and I wonder at that point in time the family's just like you know what we're done with all the inaccurate stories or the authors clearly trying to sell their narrative and not so much on the actual history of the events or the truth behind our, our family member I almost wonder if that was why they just kind of got reluctant after a while and well I'm I'll tell you what they said. Uh, they were afraid for the sons of uh, George Patton's son, and they were afraid for the for the uh, son-in-laws who were married to his kids because had the truth come out of what Patton believed to be the truth, which has pretty well turned out to be the truth, had it come out then, 
during the politics, uh, uh, it was pretty strong. Uh, they would not have advanced the way because they would have been scapegoats, or, or at least they certainly believed that they would have been. So when uh, George Pat he wrote the stuff and he sent it home, and Colonel Hawkins, who later became a four-star general and one of the advisors for the Patton movie, he got with Beatrice uh, after the war, and they took and wrote um, together uh, War As I Knew It from Patton's notes. And they had to, they knew they had to be very careful what they put in it. What's in it's true, but what they left out is a tremendous amount of material which would have changed the way people understood it. Uh, it was a bestseller at the time. Uh, there was two other books at the time that were written directly from uh, uh, about about uh, who were in Patton's headquarters. Um, one by uh, Wallace, who was a liaison uh, chief, Colonel Wallace, and then the other one was from his uh, assistant G2, uh, Robert Allen. And um, uh, both of those were bestsellers as well. Uh, but as time went on, uh, Patton's memory dimmed. The movie brought it back to life. Had it not been for the movie, people probably wouldn't know what I portray today. But um, the family said, okay, it's been long enough. So uh, Martin Blumenson, uh, who had, had been a World War II veteran and a fantastic historian and author, he was given the first access to the patent papers. And he wrote uh, a two-volume set of the patent papers based on everything. The patent kept everything from the time he was a kid Till he passed away, every single piece of paper, every note, every order, everything, and so he was able to draw from that. When the patent papers came out, uh, people said, "Whoa, there's a lot more to this man," and more and more books began to uh, uh, come out. And then finally, the the, the um, patent family said, "Okay, it's time," and they donated the entire collection to the Library of Congress and they put open domain to it. That means it's open to the public, no copyrights. You want to go research and find out about stuff, it's there. So I sent a researcher that was working there, and I said, okay, I can't come up here to get all this material. So the, the researcher I had on weekends, she'd go up there with a camera, and she'd go through the entire patent papers and take a picture of it at about 450 DPI. I have 86 gigs of the patent The world's papers. largest PDF file. Good Lord. As a, as a computer so, guy, I know that if you uh, if the resolution on a PDF file is larger than 100, you can only fit like five pages in that PDF file. So well, I can it, imagine it, it how it big your low emails. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> um, and that's, that's I, how I, I got the both, uh, copies of the patent papers. I cracked it open once, and I thought, pfft. No, thanks. <laughs> in, in your research, did you come across any firsthand accounts or maybe retellings of Patton's feelings of being kind of, I don't know if I would say put on the sidelines, but kind of being put in charge of the quote unquote ghost army to help sell the deception of, you know, the, the missed yeah, landings of where we were going to land that. in France. Yeah. He didn't mind that a bit. And the reason he didn't, he was secret when they Eisenhower, came back from a vacation, a secret vacation from 1943 to 44, and took over as the uh, Allied commander, as Roosevelt had named him Supreme Allied Headquarters Commander. And he knew he wanted to keep Patton. So uh, Patton was there uh, last part of February. He was told then at the time, you got the command, but we need a Rouge. And the Rouge had already begun. And so he was uh, in Operation Fortitude, where he was going to be the fake commander. That's one of the reasons for those speeches, by the way. 
you know, where he gets, first of all, he didn't stand up in a speech and said, no bastard ever won a war with a dying friend country. He, to other before. he never, he never started his speech that way. It was all hand done and it was all him, but he gave those speeches all over, um, uh, United Kingdom and into Ireland to the troops that he knew would be fighting under him. And of course they didn't know it. A lot of them didn't. And the reason he did is they wanted the, the German spies who were actually, a lot of them were, uh, counterintelligence spies, uh, to see him and hear him and know he was there, even though he was a secret, that was part of the Rouge. And they never mentioned third army. It was just, he was going to be the first army commander. And, um, he even gave a speech His one of his speeches, like you see in the movie, but without the medals. And it was a lot longer, uh, on the fifth day of June. Now on the fifth day of June, we had the ships out there, uh, waiting to see if they were going to come back or they were going to land on the sixth. So he was still giving the speech so the Germans could know he was still in uh, England so that he was going to lead the uh, uh, force. And it, Hitler bought into it. He thought that, that the still was going to be another, even after he's told the Normandy invasion, he was still waiting for Patton and, and the invasion he thought was going to concur. So it worked. Now, it wouldn't work today with all the satellites and stuff, but it worked then. And it was that surprise that gave them the thrust that they needed. So Patton even though he wasn't actually at the first invasion, he was very much a part of it. And he didn't mind that a bit. He thought that was a, a good thing, but he was really anxious to get his third army in there. So he would, his G2 would give him all the reports of the things that were happening on, on the beaches. And he kept up with all of the army units that, uh, that were there and all the German units and what, cause he knew he'd be facing the German units. So his, his intelligence was uh, superb. And so when he, came on to the continent, he knew exactly what his face. And of course he was also briefed, uh, by Bradley and by Montgomery and they sit down and they weren't the enemies that the movie would have you think of them. They were, they, they knew that they had to be professional soldiers and get the job done. So they would sit down, they shared information right there at, at the beginning of it. And they, uh, Montgomery was actually in charge of all the ground forces and he was in charge of all the ground forces for quite some time until they reverted back to the commands like Bradley took. So it was uh, an interesting um, political issue at, at that time, too. Oh, I'm sorry. It looks like Jeff stepped away. I was I was uh, tending to some production here on the back end. Um, you know, back at the beginning, you were talking about how Patton had a photographic memory and he was studying the maps and, and it occurred to me well that would probably help explain how he was able to accomplish what he accomplished in in such a fast manner not only did he know of the battlefields of the past but he knew of the routes that the quote-unquote good guys took and the bad guys took and which ones worked and so he knew not to relive the troop movements that failed and to you know readjust in modern day so that he can get through those areas quicker because he knew from reading the past and the maps and, and his history where things could cause bottlenecks or break down due to geographical makeup so i'm sure that really his his photographic memory his his lust for history and all things military probably was a huge proponent and a huge contribution to how well he was able to move you know it the was third a lot arc. of it but he, he understand that he had one of the finest intelligence services it, that any army had, it was head, it held uh, by uh, Colonel Oscar Koch. And uh, 
Koch kept a running uh, tally of all the German units worldwide. And he knew what happened to them when they were decimated, when they were changed. And it was Colonel Koch who predicted nine days before the Battle of the Bulge that there was an enemy buildup. And he pretty well had an idea where it was going to be in the Ardennes because everything else had radio traffic and it was total silence at the Ardennes. And he knew what units were missing. And he had tracked them from all from Russia, from from Italy. As they see, the German army moved on trains, and uh, the spies were all over Europe, and they knew what was on these trains and what units were on these trains. And all of a sudden, they disappeared. They no radio silence. Didn't know where they were. So he gave a report to Patton that uh, of the troop buildup that they didn't know exactly where they were, and. Uh, he said it was conceivable that they had the troops to attack. Now, they didn't know exactly where, but they had an idea. So Patton sent that information up, and he was involved in, in a battle called Operation Tink, which was supposed to go all the way to Frankfurt and go through the Siegfried Line. And uh, he actually had a German lieutenant general who had agreed to help him go through the Siegfried Line. And he told him where all of the stuff was. He told his G2 anyway. And they checked it out because he helped set up the Siegfried Line. His name was Hans Schaefer. And... Uh, he had been captured in, um, I'm telling you new history that most people don't know anything about. It's in the books and where it came from. But uh, So he had been there. He had been a, he was a Prussian, uh, extract professional soldier, and he knew that Germany was going to lose the war. He didn't want, He knew that Hitler would fight on until it, until it was in, and he didn't want to see that happen to his country. So he gave information to um, uh, the G2 Koch uh, about how to take Siegfried Land. And they were in the process of fixing to do that with the heavy bombers and General Doolittle was in on it and Spats and the whole business. They were going to bomb and then they were going to take two armies and go all the way through through Frankfurt uh, when the Battle of the Bulge began to take place on the 16th of um, uh, December, which he stopped, Patton stopped in his tracks. And this is where the, the, the brilliance of the man came about. He kept a bruge going on in the battle he was in. He told the 4th Armored Division to move and two other divisions to move, and they moved toward uh, Bastogne. And uh, he directed that personally himself. He was in uh, Hapgay, who was the uh, assistant commander of Third Army, uh, and it was at um, Nancy, France. And Patton then went to Luxembourg with Bradley, and Patton conducted, uh, oh, with communications back forth, uh, what to do. And then he had a good hand in what they were planning with Oscar Koch. And, um, that's how they went toward and got into the battle of the bulge, which lasted about to the 31st of, uh, December. Uh, then he also, there's another story about his chaplain, which the movie doesn't bring out. Uh, and, and I want to bring that out. People have talked about Patton and his, uh, is a colorful language. And yes, he used it a lot, but he was also went to church every time he could on Sunday. And he, he called his chaplain, which is, uh, and, and chaplain Hugh O'Neill. And, uh, he said, look, we have, we're in a spot here. He says this weather, this is Lorraine campaign. When it was pouring down rain. He says, we need a, uh, a prayer. And, but, but before I talk about the prayer we need, he says, let me ask you something. Do, do the soldiers, are they able to pray? And if you know anything about the liturgy of the Catholic and the Episcopal Church and Patton was an Episcopal, it's, there's not much personal praying. He says, 
I want personal praying. I want these soldiers to have a chance in the services to get down on their knees and ask the Lord to protect them and to bring us out of this. So he issued uh, an instructional letter, number five, through his chaplain, and it went to 400 and something different chaplains throughout his entire army uh, that they were to give the soldiers a chance to actually pray, and they did. Uh, that's something that's not known uh, by a lot of people. And the, the, the prayer, the, the chaplain never say, like he did in the movie, well, sir, I don't know how, how the Lord would receive it. That's baloney. That was never said. Chaplain O'Neill went back, and he uh, looked through his books, and he thought about it a lot, and he came up with the prayer. And um, it was for the Lorraine campaign, but uh, it didn't get actually issued until a little bit later. And he had, he had 250,000 cards with the, with the Christmas greeting and the prayer. Now, no other general I can think of ever sent prayers out to his men. Uh, and he believed in, in the Lord, and he believed in, in praying a lot. He got down on his knees, and he wasn't ashamed to do that. Um, and it, uh, Chaplain O'Neill uh, later uh, wrote it all down, and it was published uh, in some oral interviews that he did. So we know what actually really happened. Um, and he uh he always gave credit to the almighty he never took the credit himself he said you know i hope the lord will see us through with this i hope the lord will see us through with that um we forget that today um somehow praying and 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 going to the lord and saying uh asking for help and when we are hurt and when we have loved ones hurt we forget to go to the lord sometimes but they did they did then and uh they they knew that that they were in the fight for their life, and they knew that the, that if they lost this battle, and they could have lost lost it, uh, that the world would be forever changed. So praying was a was a very important part of those soldiers' uh, life, and Patton was leading that. You're absolutely right. I'm 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 really glad you brought that up, uh, Denny. Usually about this time in our show, we're, we we do a, a book review. Uh, but, uh, how about this for a book review? Uh, where can people buy your books before we get to our round table here? Final thoughts, where, where can people get your books at? Where can they buy it only in one place? That's Amazon. Yeah. I'm on your website. I'm on your page on Amazon and people can actually just go to Amazon, type in Denny hair and you can do the follow the author. They have all his publications up there. All, all the books are there as well as a bio and you can, Click follow, and anytime any new information comes up, any projects, it'll notify them. Are you working on any on any uh, new projects right now? Um, I've toyed with putting another book out about Patton in World War One. Uh, I have a lot of information about how he went into tanks and and how he developed the light tank and how it fought in World War One. What he did, I have uh, quite a bit, and I've, I've toyed with that, and I'm, I'm considering it. Uh, it just takes so much time to write one and to get mm -hmm. it exactly like he wants. Sure. And, uh, so I'm thinking about it. Well, as always, we will uh, post a link to your Amazon page as well as your website and your Instagram page on our website, WTSPWorldWar2.com, uh, tomorrow when this episode goes live. And um, I want to appreciate uh, tell you we appreciate your time and thank you for coming on. Once again, it's author Mr. Denny Hare. Uh, you guys have any um Follow-up statements before we let Mr. Hare go, and then we'll uh, finish up the show. And Denny, I just want to say again, yeah, thank you for coming on, and I'm really looking forward to working with you here in about eight weeks uh, at our at our Blue Bonnet Air Show right here in Burnett. Uh, I'll, I'll let you in on a little secret. I closed the museum today, 
starting today uh, up until about the weekend before the air show for some much needed renovations. So I'm going to be working up there in the evenings and weekends. And we got a whole crew coming in to uh, really upgrade that museum to, to the standard that it needs to be. Uh, so look forward to showing that off and, and, and uh, look forward to seeing you, Denny. Well, listen, it was a pleasure to, to meet you gentlemen tonight, and I hope that we can meet one day in person. Of course, I will meet with Jeff, but I hope I can meet the rest of you guys, and I wish you uh, a good 2022. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Activated based on the recommendation of the Advisory Committee on Negro Troop Policies, chaired by the Assistant Secretary of War, John J. McCloy, Chief of Staff George C. Marshall approved the committee's recommendation for a Black Parachute Battalion and decided to start with a company. And on February 25, 1943, the 555th Parachute Infantry Company was constituted. On December 19, 1943, headquarters of the Army Ground Forces authorized the activation of the company as an all-black unit with black officers as well as black enlisted men. All unit members would be volunteers with an enlisted cadre to be selected from personnel of the 92nd Infantry Division stationed out of Fort Huachuca, Arizona. The company was officially activated on December 30, 1943 at Fort Bennings, Georgia. After several months of training, the unit moved to Camp McCall, North Carolina, where it was reorganized and redesignated on November 25, 1944, as Company A of the newly activated 555th Parachute Infantry Battalion. Due to its numerical designation, as well as the fact that 17 of its original 20 members were selected from the 92nd Infantry Buffalo Division, the 555th PIB would adopt the nickname the Triple Nickels, hence the origin of the term Buffalo Nickels. And though combat ready and alerted for European duty in late 1944, the changing tides of war resulted in a different assignment, jumping over the blazing forest of the American Northwest searching for Japanese balloon bombs, a job requiring exact skills and special courage. In this unusual role, the 555th also confronted a new dimension in warfare involving the use of biological agents that could destroy woodlands and crops, but not humans. These men soon became known as smoke jumpers. At this stage in the war, the Japanese began floating incendiary devices attached to balloons across the Pacific Ocean, taking advantage of its jet stream's easterly flow in an attempt to start forest fires all over the northwest of the United States. The Forestry Service asked the military for help, and the Triple Nickels were ready, willing, and able. The battalion answered some 36 fire calls with more than 1,200 individual jumps during the summer of 1945. Operating from Pendleton and Chico, California, the operations covered all the northwestern states, including Montana. During fire operations, the battalion suffered numerous injuries, but only one fatality. Malvin L. Brown, a medic assigned to the battalion's headquarters company, died on August 6, 1945, after falling during a letdown from a tree near Roseburg, Oregon. His death is the first recorded smoke jumper fatality during a fire jump. When the battalion was inactivated on December 15, 1947, its men were all transferred into 3rd Battalion, 505th Parachute Infantry Regiment, which had been reduced to a cadre strength to prepare for their arrival. Soon afterwards, individual black paratroopers were transferred to units throughout the 82nd Airborne Division, making it the first integrated division in the United States Army. And we want to thank Denny once again for coming on, and uh, thank you guys for hanging out with us. We're not done yet. I just want to throw that little history lesson in there, seeing how this is Martin Luther King Day. And uh, anyhow, um, we have kind of exciting news, I guess. Um, as per Jeff's request, we do have an official What's the Scuttlebutt 
podcast Instagram page, so now you don't have to see all my personal nonsense on our page. Um, but that is actually going to be managed by all three of us. And um, while we're on the topic, uh, for the first time since 2018, and uh, what I want to say is pretty much my opinion. doesn't exactly express the opinions of Jeff or Henry. But uh, for the first time since 2018, as you guys know, last week we had on Matt De Palma, who is a German reenactor and German historian. Um, we actually had a photo removed. And this isn't the first time we've had German reenactors on. Matt was the third one. We don't have a whole hell of a lot of them here. But we've had enough where I've posted photos. And even on the Weimar Republic uniforms, they have the the eagle and the swats to go, but in the overly sensitive cancel culture days we have now, um, at least based on my opinion, uh, Facebook took down that photo and um, also put us under restriction for the next 23 days. And so if you are a subscriber to the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast Facebook page and you don't see any of our posts, that's because one of the penalties is Facebook let us know they're going to be burying our post on people's timelines for the next 23 days. So, uh, you may want to go ahead and ironically, I know Instagram is owned by Facebook, so it really doesn't matter, but please head over to Instagram and uh, follow us there at WTSP World War II. And, uh, let's get back to all, all, and while you're on the internet looking at Instagram, please head over to WTSP World War II.com. Click on Patreon, sign up and subscribe. It only costs you $1.50 a month and that goes a long way to support the podcast. But, uh, what do you guys have in the way of books for this week? Well, I'm. As Jeff and I were talking about, I finished Spearhead. Uh, I read Bomber Boys. Right now I'm reading. Can you guys read that or is it backwards? No, it's good. Robert ah. Sherrod's book, History of Marine Corps Aviation, World War II. That's, it'll take me a while to, to get through that. So that, that's what I'm in now. I am, uh, you know, I'm halfway through this Pelu tragic triumph, and I was reading a paragraph that, kind of went into a description I had never heard explained before, but one of the hypotheses that the uh, author was floating that apparently he had heard throughout the history world was um, they think it's kind of odd that during the invasion that the Japanese artillery and bombardments kind of lightened up. And some people don't know if it was to protect their backlog of ammunition or I guess some people kind of flirted the idea that the Japanese knew that um, they weren't going to win that battle, but maybe they need to slow it down and drag it out as long as possible to, to slow down the Marine Corps advance on their island hopping campaign. And there's just a quick paragraph where he kind of made it sound like it's almost the Japanese said, okay, or at least the ones on the island said, okay, let's, we've, we've hit them caused a lot of casualties, but let's slow down the uh, beach landing bombardment to make this campaign drag out longer to prevent them from just mowing through and moving on to the next island. I, I've never really heard that suggested before, but it's just it was a weird paragraph that kind of popped up in that book. Yeah, it's, it's been a lot of years since I read read that one, but I mean, really, if you think about it, Peleliu kind of was where they really started going defense in depth. You know, with, with the idea at first being that you're not going to stop them from landing. Mm -hmm. The idea is to bleed them dry as they advance inland. And you as know, they had already learned from Guadalcanal and New Britain and all that bonsai Saipan charge. Saipan and Tinian and Roy. Yeah. And bonsai charge is just a big waste of manpower. And especially when you're trying to to slow down the charge to your home island, you know, you, you need to change you know, tactics at a certain point. Take that thought process on out at Okinawa where they barely oppose the landing at all. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What say you, Jeffrey? 
Oh yeah, so I'm still I'm still working on uh, on Spearhead. I was Count Henry. I, I I thought I'd be done with it by this episode, but I've kind of slowed down a little bit. I had some personal things coming up, and again with with closing the museum and, and trying to concentrate on that. Now the, the you know the the stopwatch begins now to to get this done before our our air show on uh, on the 19th of March. But um, it's funny. I, the spearhead is the first one, and and for people who don't know and they're watching, it's 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 Adam Makos' uh, uh, spearhead. It's an incredible, incredible book. Uh, I know Henry's been in touch with him, and I think simultaneously when he was emailing you, he was sending me messages through uh, Instagram, and him and I had a really great little little chat through Instagram about the the stories that we can't wait to share when he is eventually on our podcast when he has the time. So I think that's huge news for for us and, and for our listeners, but. That is probably the first book that I have read strictly about armored warfare. Um, and I've been looking through my, my shelves and, and, and my books and everything. I, I, I don't have another one. And I'm almost kind of, while I'm hung up on it, I kind of want to read one more um, before I shift over. I mean, of course, you get into the end of February. It's tough to not read about Iwo Jima. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just the the anniversaries. I don't know. It's it's it could go either way. And, and Henry and I are probably the only dorks that think about stuff like that. Well, it, we're, yeah. We're I mean, Jeff, you're right. It's too cold to be. I mean, normally I wouldn't be diving into Pacific stuff, but you know, I'm working with the guys on on Cowboy Stout's cousin. We're collaborating on a film about him, so I'm I'm wanting to to just absorb myself in marine aviation as much as I can, but um yeah i mean I, one of the books i got for christmas was uh, alamo and the ordin you know by john mcmanus and i was starting to read that and i thought well, wait a minute man i've really got to read this marine aviation book but so jeff are you saying you really want to read another armor book yeah i, I i'm kind of leaning that way and of course it depends so i'm i'm starting my undergrad for history program the end of february i don't know how much spare time i'm gonna have and i'll be honest i've got um I don't know how much our listeners care about what we're talking about right now, but I've got a collection of, uh, it's called World's Greatest Literature. It's a 20-volume set. was published in the mid-30s. It's all hardbound books. It's up on my fireplace mantle, and it's stuff like uh, Ben-Hur and uh, stuff done by Edgar Allan Poe, um, you know, Moby Dick, Autobiography of Ben Franklin, uh, Ivanhoe, things like that. And one of them is is uh, Plutarch and a collection of you know, Themistocles and Alcibiades and Cicero. And um, I've kind of been just veering off. I just finished a course about um, the uh, Peloponnesian Wars and, and Athens and Sparta and started just kind of reading about the, we, we make so many connections. I think so many people make a connection and, and we talk about the Roman empire and this and that and the other thing, but I really kind of wanted to really understand uh, honestly, the next time I watch the Patton movie, I want to know ex- a little bit more what he's talking about, about the Carthaginians and, mm-hmm. and things like that, you know? So I'm trying to, I don't know. I'm kind of, I'm, I'm back and forth. I'm back and forth. But I think once after the air show and it'll really start warming up here, I've actually do have a couple books. Uh, I've got about 15, 16, just on Iwo Jima. And there's a couple I haven't read yet. So I may get back in the, I may get back in the EWO. Yeah. I never thought about it. Maybe that's why I do so much studying on the Pacific just cause I live in Florida and it's just damn hot all year round with the <laughs> exception of like the two weeks right now. I mean, it, it, 
it's like 60 degrees out, and here I am wearing a t-shirt and a long sleeve shirt and sweatpants. Because well, I that, envy you. That and I spent the weekend up in Georgia. Which, by the way, shout out to Jerry Petrella and the guys up in Georgia who put that event on. Um, the numbers were a little lower this year. I think mixed primarily not because of COVID as as far as the disease goes, but probably because of COVID and inflation and people losing hours and jobs like that. You know, just making that long haul. We still had a great what, what weekend. What part of Georgia were you in, Don? It's it's technically it's called Lanier, Georgia, but it's a small yeah. ass town. It, I T Mobile, I can only get one bar, and the only time I could use my phone was standing out in the middle of the field, which is a huge improvement because the last three years I'd have to drive into Lanier and go hop on Burger King's Wi-Fi to make a phone call. So T Mobile wow. is getting some, uh, but uh, they're the biggest city nearby would be Valdosta, Georgia. And yeah, so it's yeah. it's a quick hop. Um, you know when I it, it's it was a five hour drive from my house. Um, I actually traded my Tundra for my dad's Tacoma, so I went from a V8 down to a V6 so I can save some money on some gas. And it's kind of cool because when you go up the interstate, they actually take you off on the back roads, and so you actually make the drive over Georgia, um, the transition from Florida over to Georgia through back roads instead of over the interstate. And um, it's a good time. It's actually at a Boy Scout camp, interestingly enough, called Camp Patton. Uh, People don't realize this. You can rent Boy Scout camps. Um, cause they don't use them all the time. And so we discovered this a few years back. We rent out this boy scout camp. Um, I got up, I left here five o'clock Friday morning, got up there around 10, 11 ish. Uh, we did a tactical event on Friday. I tracked it with my phone. Um, it was a shorter event. Uh, the Germans kind of called it quit a little early, but that's fine. We still did two and a half miles of hiking through the woods on uh, Friday. And then we ate some food and Got up early Saturday morning, started out Saturday morning at uh, 9, and then um, around 11.30, we circled back and did a public uh, reenactment right on the edge of the field so the public could see us because the tactical was all back in the woods. And then uh, we took a lunch break and then did another secondary public event at 2 o'clock. And um, this is the Malmody Massacre. So um, this event is about Malmody. And so... One of the interesting things we try to do is um, at the early show on Saturday, we had a little, me and about six or seven people, we were kind of patrolling through the woods, and we did the whole thing where they took us captive after a little skirmish, and they walked us down in the woods out of the sight of the um, public. And then we, you know, we all, even though, because the public's not going to know the difference between a bolt action um, Mauser versus an M1, so all of us down in the woods are just start shooting up in the air to, make, to give the sound of the massacre as the PA system was explaining about the massacre and all that. So we did that. We had, um, you know, I don't know, we, like I said, it was a smaller event this year. We probably had 20, 30 allies, probably 20, 25 Germans and about eight, um, oh, Dutch, not, but um, eight partisans out there. And the cool thing is we actually had two guys doing Scottish and a British impression. So that's always fun to have some of the uh, other allies out there. Because usually, you know, you go to events, it's people. You'll have some infantry and some airborne guys. But we actually had uh, two Scottish impersonators and um, a British impersonator. It was pretty cool. I was just talking about that the other day, you know, with my living history unit out here, Company B, that I stood up a year or so ago. Um, you know, it's not – I wanted to make sure that people understood when they get involved. You know, it's not just World War II because that museum has an M60 tank and, mm-hmm. and you know, a bunch of other post-war artifacts. So we – there's a couple of us that are that are doing some some Vietnam stuff. But I mentioned the other – I said, man, we need a British 
World War II reenactor. That would just really be a great conversation piece and uh, really lend dignity to, you know, it was it was an ally effort. It was not the war was not won by the Americans. So we have we do have some British and Russian artifacts uh, on display in the museum. So, you know, to be able to portray that side, too, is is important. We have a guy down here. And from a distance, it looks great. He took like an old Jeep Cherokee chassis and he made a British command car, you know, the armored command cars. And of course, all the armor is just made out of plywood, but from across the field, it looks like the real deal. And so he'll get down every once in a while and, um, or he'll go out to events where they have some of the British, inf- you know, he'll come out in the command car and he actually has the right footwear and everything. It does a really good job. And he usually, he wasn't there this year, but he usually takes that up to Georgia and drives it through the woods and, if you go to my YouTube channel and you look at the video from last year, you'll see it driving down the street. It, like I said, from from across the field, from twenty feet away, it looks like you know real armor and all that. But he basically built it out of a Jeep Cherokee and some and wood and other things, and hmm. just to get get the job done. Because obviously, you're not going to find a command car over here in the states without spending a small fortune to import the thing <laughs> and re- restore it over here. So, and uh, but no, it's it was a good time. Um, a lot of driving. But uh, all in all, it's a good time, and uh, can't wait to do it again next year. And um, hopefully, more and more people show up every year. And because uh, um, we were kind of predicting this early when it comes to the reenacting living history stuff with COVID and just the way the wind's blowing, there's it seems like every year there's less and less of them to go to, which is sad. So hopefully, um, we get over this COVID policy stuff and uh, people start showing up to events. And Don, do you, do you think that applies to everything like Civil War? World War II, what, whatever. I mean, does that across the board just kind of? Um. Yeah. Well, the problem we're having down here in Florida um, is we had this. They had this in in the Civil War realm. Um, I forget the name of the town. We had a uh, something raid. It had been going on for forty five years down here, and last year they, the year before they killed it, first time forty five years, and that one was done. That was a huge Civil War one. Uh, the problem we face in Florida ever since the Pulse Night sh- uh, Club shooting, um, any Florida state-owned park, we can no longer do weapons demonstrations with firearms that carry brass cartridges. So that basically leaves you can do your Revolutionary War, your Civil War, your Spanish-American War, but World War One, World War Two, Vietnam, all that stuff's out now. And um, as living historians, we don't mind showing up and setting up the tents and setting up the displays, but Jeff can tell you as much as anybody, if you're not making noise with some blanks at least twice a day, um, people aren't as happy to come out and watch the show. Well, that's, yeah, it's a huge part of it. Yeah. And then kind of like I was saying earlier, um, I don't think it's so much as reenactors concerned about getting COVID as much as people's jobs being affected, inflation. Um, I know my, my income since COVID as a small business owner, has been hit traumatically over the last two years. Just, um, you know, when you're a small business whose job it is to service other small businesses, and I think what the status right. was like 45 to 50% of small businesses in the country went out of business, um, people just don't have the expendable income to drive four or five hours, spend a couple hundred bucks on blanks and things like that. And so I think that has a, and, you know, and a lot of employers may not allow cats to take a, a day or two off right now to make that drive down. So I think yeah. that, I think that probably has a more bigger impact than fears and concerns of getting sick does, at least down here in Florida where no one wears masks unless they go in a place that's 
owned by a corporate company whose corporate office is located in a different state. So that's mm. kind of how you can tell when you go to a store where their corporate office is located by if they uh, mandate. Just about everybody's employees wear them for legal reasons, but if they have signs forcing their customers to wear them, at least down here in Florida, you kind of know where their corporate office is located. But, yeah, so it's it's definitely uh, – I need to slow down any. I'm going to have to take my boots over to a cobbler. Uh, my seams, my, you know how on the old World War II boots, they're all sewn with that heavy gauge thread. The soles are sewn on. My my boots are starting to separate. Luckily, they didn't blow out, so I can take them over to a cobbler and have them re-sew them up. But, yeah, i gotta, I got to get some maintenance done on my boots finally after all these years. Just, yeah, I'm, the same, I'm in the same boat. I've got to put heel pads on my jump boots. Uh, they're, they're just about worn away. And uh, of course, that's a lot easier than than having them sewn on. You know, they're just well, in there. But well, ironically, these are jump boots because I, when it comes to, I have two pairs of boots. I got my Bruno Dockers from my Marine Corps impression, and then when I do infantry, I just put leggings on over my jump boots, and they just look like the early service shoes. But yeah, that's actually right at the um, bridge of my foot where that's sewn together. It's not the heel uh, or the pad, but that bridge on my left boot, it's uh, separating. And luckily, I'm wearing leggings, and so it kind of that that strap that goes underneath your foot kind of helped secure that this weekend. But before I do another event, at least when it's going to require running, squatting, ducking, diving, and claw crawling, I'm going to have to go get those soles re sewn on. Yeah. But uh, that and I really need to have my M1 Garand serviced. Um, everyone, I think my op rod has a slight twist in it, and it happened three times where I'm field stripping my gun in the field during reacting event. I'll get a little extra hot round, and my um, charging handle will get dislodged from my bolt. So the bolt just stays back, and so I then have to field strip it and put the damn thing back together. And, and so my gun really needs some good servicing too. But, you know, when you're putting blanks to those things, and it's a freaking 80-year-old rifle, what do you expect, right? So, well, Henry, do you got anything to plug before we wrap up the show or anything else you want to talk about? Um, No, nah, just... Let's see. I think the only thing I got coming up is uh, first week of February. I'll be on World War II TV again with Paul Woodage, uh, who I think isn't he on our calendar for January thirty first? Yes, I believe so. I'll have to um, double check off. So, there. other than that, that's really that's really it. Well, I want to let you two know that uh, I ran into every. You know, I've said this in the past. Sometimes I feel like you know, it's almost, sometimes you guys kind of feel like we do the show for ourselves. We know people listen, but it's. It's always a little weird when someone comes up to you and says, oh, by the way, you know, I love the podcast. And so I had a couple of people come up and they um, complimented you two and said you guys are a great um, addition to the show. And uh, they really love the show. And a lot of them, it's always funny, a lot of them to kind of get themselves in the mood. They listen to the show while driving to events. And so I just wanted to let you guys know that That's uh, cool to hear. people sent you guys yeah. some love and uh, words Thanks getting out there. Thanks for telling us that, man. Yeah. yeah, I feel all warm and funny inside. <laughs> you know, but, it'll, God, I'll, I'll let you know, I'll, I'll let you in on this. The the very last uh, uh, film fest that Walking Point is a part of is coming up in February, and uh, you know it's kind of a um, kind mm-hmm. of a full circle. It's the Austin Revolution Film Fest, mm-hmm. or otherwise known as ARF, and a lot of things in the Walking Point story and how that movie came to be kind of spawned from from ARF, uh, including. You remember Liza, the uh, the main actress. Yep. Um, uh, RJ and Chelsea g- kind of stumbled on her at an art uh, fest, I guess, I don't know, five, six years ago. And we're like, hey, that 
that's our leading lady and you know the rest is history uh so there's there's talk that a lot of us are going to be it's kind of almost like a reunion now uh to go out there and so the uh i don't know if there's a virtual option because this isn't it this is a a live film fest but i don't know if there'll be a, a virtual option too for people to watch or not but uh we're gonna screen on friday february 18th and then uh, uh the 19th is uh um kind of the uh the awards uh dinner and the after party and everything that's the last day of the event so the wife and i are going to go down there on on saturday we, we, there's no way we could screen see the screening uh, on friday but i've sure. seen the movie a couple times but yeah. uh, but yeah, I think a lot of the main cast is going to try to be there. That's We're all awesome. Kind of see each other once again. Uh, you know, um, the the main co-star Josiah, he's Atlanta mm-hmm. based, so he's coming out, and then of course Lou is coming from uh, from the LA area. So uh, yeah, so and for our listeners that that don't know, that's that's how Don and I got to meet. That's how this whole thing started. So um yeah it's it's kind of a bittersweet to, to see uh to see it no longer on the circuit but we're hopeful that we can pick up another couple of awards and uh when you watch that movie stick around for the credits because uh what's the scuttlebutt is listed by name under the special thanks part of the credits on that on that film too, which is cool but um you know i think that's going to wrap it up for this episode oh uh, one thing's real quick we never we talk about it once in a while but I really want to get the word out because I had a, I had one of the German guys say to me, you know, hey, I don't listen to your podcast because I don't have Facebook. Um, we are not a Facebook podcast. We simply use Facebook to help get the word out. And I explained to him, and his son subscribed right there. He pulled out his phone. We are on Spotify, Stitcher, Google yeah, Music, Apple Podcasts. We are basically anywhere fine podcasts can find be found. And as we are notified, and I jokingly joked about on TikTok, we are currently number seventy five in education. In Sweden, <laughs> so but you know, hey. if people can, in Sweden can find us. You can find us too. So you don't, you know, if you're not on Facebook, not a big deal. Um, if you're a web-based guy and you want to download it directly to your computer, best place to go is wtspworldwar2.com. That's wtspwii.com. All the shows can be downloaded directly from our website. But to be honest with you, as a podcast listener myself, I find it's personally easier to find an app that you like on your phone. That way, when you're driving around in your car, you can connect it to your yeah. radio and listen. I just listen to it on Spotify. Yeah. So Spotify, if you're if you're an iPhone user, it's just it may be easier for you to use Apple Podcast, which is fine. Um, if you're an Android user and you don't want to download Spotify, every Android device has Google Music Play. But the caveat with that, I do not know why, all these companies get the same file off my server. Uh, they're basically just pulling up the RSS feed off my server. It's all the same file, but for some reason, and I have not figured out, the annoying thing about Google Music is when you hit pause or stop and turn off your car and come back in, the stupid thing, and it's not just this podcast, it's all the podcasts on my network, they start over from the beginning. Why, I don't know. Um, Spotify doesn't do that. Stitcher doesn't do that. So uh, that may be um, enough reason why you should probably, if you're an Android user, just use Spotify and because um, that's one of the bigger platforms anyhow. And uh, but yep, that's gonna wrap it up. You guys got anything else? No, good to see you guys again. Yeah, always good to be here. We'll be uh, we'll see you all next week. This has all been right. a digital four ten production. <laughs>